Follow the Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts to listen to our episodes early and ad-free and get access to monthly exclusive episodes. Go to patreon.com slash madness pod. We've got links in our show notes. The following series is based on extensive research conducted over a two-year period, reviewing various sources, including police reports, interviews, and newspaper articles. Throughout our research, individuals involved in the case were attempted to be contacted in order to share their experiences and perspectives. The opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In our first three parts of Who Killed Jennifer, you met Jennifer Lynn Sherm's son, Andy, who spent his whole life without a mother, not knowing who killed her or why. You also learned about Jennifer's traumatic childhood experience, which may have led to a domino effect, ultimately pushing her into a dangerous life, working the streets of Albuquerque. You know, to be honest, even if the dude was nailed and we had a trial and he got convicted, that doesn't take it away. It's always going to be there. I'm always going to wonder what it's like to have a mom. I'm always going to wonder what would have happened if I would have grown up differently. I'm always going to wonder why she made some of the choices that she made. We've talked about the investigation into Jennifer's murder that spanned nearly four decades, identifying suspects and how DNA was used to drop charges against one of those suspects and later used to point to another. A person of interest, also in the West Mesa murders. Join me now as we take a look at a man who had at least 140 encounters with Albuquerque police before his DNA was finally entered into the system. A man they'd later learn not only had connections to Jennifer's case, but two others. You'll also hear from Andy Sherm sharing how his mother's unsolved homicide has affected him over the years, how he's found healing and what this new investigation into his mother's murder has meant to him. I'm hoping, like, I'm cautiously optimistic that this whole thing works out. More than anything, I want to go back to Albuquerque and sit down at my family's grave plots and just have a conversation. In our last episode, you heard about a man named Lorenzo Montoya, caught in 1999, choking and raping a sex worker. But it was the night he died that seemed to seal the deal in bringing him to the top of APD's list of possible suspects in the West Mesa murders and possibly others. In December of 2006, Lorenzo Montoya invited 19-year-old Sharika Hill to his mobile home, which was on the southwestern side of Albuquerque. Now, when he did this, he didn't realize that while Sharika was coming to his place that she made a pit stop to pick up her boyfriend, her pimp, whose name was Frederick Williams. He took her there, dropped her off, and she went inside the mobile home. And while he was sitting there, slumped in his car, after a while, he saw Lorenzo come out of the trailer carrying Sharika's lifeless body and attempting to put her body 
into the back of a red Chevy Blazer. Immediately, Frederick got out of his car and confronted Lorenzo, threatening to call police when Lorenzo pulled a gun on him. But before he could pull the trigger, Frederick pulled out a gun of his own, shooting Lorenzo approximately five times and killing him. Police ruled the shooting as an act of self-defense, and Frederick was never charged. But what happened to Sharika? When police investigated, they found that Sharika Hill's body had been wrapped completely in a comforter. Her hands and feet were bound with duct tape, and there was more duct tape around her neck. Police came to believe that he'd strangled her with this duct tape. Looking at the scene, they got the impression the way he'd carried this out spoke of a killer who had experience at doing this before. When they looked through his trailer, they actually found zero forensic evidence that proved any of that. According to an article from the Albuquerque Journal, what they did find were a brand new set of blankets with receipts showing that Lorenzo had actually bought them just the day before Sharika was murdered. Some people believe that this proves some amount of premeditation. He bought the blankets so he could use his old blankets to hide a body and then put new ones on his bed. But perhaps the most disturbing thing that they found in Lorenzo's trailer were a stack of homemade pornographic videos that he'd filmed of women who were believed to have been local sex workers. In one particularly eerie video clip, the camera shows nothing but a bedroom wall. But in the background, you can hear what sounds like somebody unrolling duct tape before the sound of rustling plastic sheeting or a garbage bag. Now, while this video wasn't proof of a murder, knowing what we know now about how Sharika's body was wrapped up, the sounds of duct tape on the video are incredibly haunting. After police found the videotapes, APD held a police conference, hoping the women seen in the videos could be identified. Disturbingly, many of the women appeared unconscious. We really don't know anything about these women. Uh, we believe that these are women from the Albuquerque area. Um, we don't know who they are or where they are at this point in time. So that's where we're asking for help. Eventually, some of the victims were identified and confirmed to be alive, while the identity of others still remains a mystery. So naturally, police started to try to connect Lorenzo Montoya, possibly as the perpetrator, to the West Mesa victims. They began reinvestigating all the evidence from the night that he'd murdered Sharika Hill. And they also looked through every single homemade video that he'd made looking for any possible clues. They scoured the place for DNA or any other forensic evidence that might link him to these victims. And ultimately they didn't find anything there. They even poured over his financial records, looking for patterns with his purchases and dates that might coincide with some of the victims and the dates they'd gone missing. But even here, they found nothing, which is one of the more popular misconceptions when people talk about Lorenzo. In the end, when it came to Lorenzo Montoya, despite searching as hard as they could, there was not a single piece of physical evidence they could find that linked Lorenzo to the West Mesa murders. But there was some circumstantial evidence they couldn't overlook. The first being 
Lorenzo had already killed at least one known sex worker, Sharika Hill, and two, the proximity of Lorenzo's trailer to the West Mesa burial site. In fact, it was practically in his backyard, only about a mile and a half from his front door. And then there was the set of tire tracks Christina Barber mentioned earlier, a clue that's become a favorite among armchair detectives. So there are satellite photos taken of this area over Albuquerque, which include the West Mesa. And the ones that you can find from 2004, which is the same year that the majority of the victims went missing. In these photos out in the Mesa on the desert, you can clearly see a set of tire tracks in the exact location where the bodies were buried. And if you go back just a couple years before 2004, these tracks do not exist. These were recent tracks made right when these women were going missing. Because of this, almost everyone, including the police, including Web Sluice, that these tire tracks that you can see on the satellite photos were definitely made by the West Mesa Bone Collector, just wearing down a dirt trail to a secret graveyard. When you look at these photos, if you follow these tire tracks back out from where the Bone Collector would have been entering his graveyard, if you follow these tracks out, you take a left, and then you take a right turn at the next dirt road intersection. It's really striking, but these tire tracks lead to an area right outside Lorenzo's trailer park. But was it actually evidence or was it just a coincidence? All we can say for sure is that if Lorenzo was the bone collector, he would have had easy access to that location. So the next piece of circumstantial evidence regarding Lorenzo and the one that I actually find the most compelling is the fact that the women who matched Ida Lopez's victim's profile, these women seem to stop disappearing right after Lorenzo's death in December 2006. Now, although Lorenzo's still considered a significant person of interest in the West Mesa murders, there's actually also another man that's right there at the top of the list, and that's Joseph Blea. Have you ever gotten undressed only to realize you were in front of an open window? I am not going to confirm or deny that happened to me. But if it happened to you, how did it make you feel? Exposed? Vulnerable? Well, going online without using ExpressVPN is like being naked in front of a floor-to-ceiling window. There are creepers out there who can see and record everything you do online, even in so-called private browsing mode. Next time you go online in private browsing or incognito mode, look at the fine print. You'll see that your browsing history is actually visible to a ton of people, like your internet provider, your school, or even your employer. ExpressVPN is an app that sends 100% of your traffic through their encrypted servers, so your browsing history cannot be seen by anyone. It's like super incognito mode that actually works. Sign up and give ExpressVPN a try and experience the same VPN security we use over at Team Madness. So make sure to protect your online activity with the VPN I trust to keep me private. Visit expressvpn.com slash madness today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash madness to get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash madness. 
Police have been turned on to Blay in this case, just nine days after the first bone was discovered in the West Mesa. And the tip came in from a woman named April, who told police she might have an idea of who was responsible for the West Mesa murders. A man with a history of violence and soliciting sex workers, who also took frequent evening trips out along the dusty roads of the West Mesa. Someone police had already been looking into for other serious crimes. And that man was April's ex-husband, Joseph Blea. When police in Albuquerque received April's tip, they were already investigating Joseph in connection with the mid-school rapist case and his potential connection to the murder of Jennifer Sherm because of the DNA matches. But now they were confronted with the possibility that Joseph might be a serial killer as well. So they started diving into his record, and it was extensive. And they got a better understanding of just who they were looking into. Joseph had a long history dating back to the 70s of deviance. When he was still just a teenager in Portales, New Mexico, a small town about 200 miles east of Albuquerque. In high school, Joseph was known as a peeping Tom and was arrested for stealing women's underwear from three different homes in 1975. He also committed two acts of indecent exposure and was arrested for enticement of a child. Not long after getting out of prison, Joseph committed his first known rape but was only caught after attempting to rape another woman five weeks later. Somehow, Blea managed to plead down the charges to aggravated assault and was only sentenced to another two and a half years behind bars. Sometime after his release, Joseph moved to Albuquerque and married April. Even while he was married to April, Joseph was known to solicit sex workers along East Central. Between 1988 and 1993 is when he committed the series of horrific rapes that would cause him to be known as the mid-school rapist, although police didn't know that at the time. In 1997, Joseph's arrested for indecent exposure, but this time police noticed something a bit disturbing. In Joseph's vehicle, they found what they believed was a rape kit. This included rope, a roll of electrical tape, and it was sitting right there on his passenger seat. And at home, we know that Joseph's domestic life was also highly volatile. In 1992, he was first reported for child abuse, and he was reported by his own son. But it seems that the brunt of Blea's abuse was actually directed towards his wife at the time, April. This all comes to a head just before Christmas in 1996. When April came home late one night from a Christmas party, Joseph was at home waiting for her, still wearing his boots. For the next hour, April reported that Joseph beat the living hell out of her, punching her, kicking her, throwing her around, and repeatedly slamming her head into walls. After the attack, April's body was covered in bruises. Her face, back, thighs, arms, even her ankles, Strikingly similar injuries reported in Jennifer Sherm's autopsy report. The next day, April called police requesting help to leave the abusive relationship and at some point, her and Joseph divorced. In 2002, Joseph meets Cheryl, who he eventually marries. 
Now, Cheryl's experience with Joseph doesn't seem like it's all that much different than April's. And it's been reported that on several occasions, Cheryl actually spent time in battered women's shelters with her daughter to get away from him. By this point, Joseph had had over a hundred encounters with police, including a history of violent and sexual crimes, which makes you wonder how Joseph managed to walk the streets for so long. Fortunately, he wouldn't be free for much longer. After police learned a little more about who Joseph was, when they dove into his background, they saw his rap sheet, they saw his extensive criminal history, they realized that he definitely was someone to look into a little further. So they started surveilling him, they started watching him. They did see him go down to East Central, and he appeared to be stalking sex workers. He'd drive by them really slowly, he'd circle back around. Could be argued that Joseph was just out there looking for a specific type of sex worker, but it seemed to investigators that they might have discovered something at the West Mesa burial site that maybe Joseph was looking for a victim. At the burial site on the West Mesa, investigators found something else other than bones at the grave site, and it was buried eight feet underground right with one of the bodies. And what investigators found was an identification tag from a five-gallon spearmint juniper tree the kind you'd find attached to trees at nurseries. The tag was from a California wholesaler who supplied several nurseries in Albuquerque. And after tracking down a local retailer, police were told something very interesting. So it turned out that Joseph was actually a regular customer of this wholesaler. And he owned and he operated his own landscaping company. And he'd done so since the mid-80s. Now, what's a bit eerie about this is how Christine actually referred to the West Mesa serial killer as a gardener. And here we find that the best clue from the burial site leads us to a landscaper. Now, it's also been reported that detectives learned from interviews that Joseph was known to drive out to the West Mesa late at night. And he did so to dump landscaping debris, ostensibly so he could avoid paying landfill fees. But was it possible that saving a few bucks wasn't the only reason Joseph had been driving out to the desert late at night. While they were investigating Joseph for these other potential crimes, he was indicted on a domestic violence charge from 2008 involving his wife Cheryl, and he was sent to jail. In June 2009, police executed a search warrant for his home. Here, they found a stash of women's underwear hidden in a shed. And according to Cheryl, this was underwear that did not belong to anyone in the household. Now, police haven't revealed whether any of this DNA from these items were ever analyzed or if they ever matched any of the West Mesa victims or any other missing persons. And as far as we know, this nursery tree tag that was found at the West Mesa burial site is the only piece of evidence that could possibly link Joseph to the crime scene. And it's also the only known piece of physical evidence that possibly links anyone to these West Mesa murders. But a single tree tag that may be impossible to prove even belonged to Joseph. It wasn't much evidence to charge anyone with murder. To this day, 
Police haven't discovered strong enough evidence to bring charges against anyone for the 12 victims found out in the West Mesa, including Joseph. 15 years later, the case still remains open, unsolved, and one of the biggest mysteries the state has ever experienced. So in 2023, the Albuquerque Police Department attempts to revitalize this case by bringing it back to the public consciousness and they hold a big press conference and they're hoping it might get someone to come forward with new information. And during this press conference, the investigator, Liz Thompson, she describes exactly the profile that they've come up with of the suspect they're looking for. This person may have been charming or friendly in order to build trust or a relationship of some kind with the women first. We have received close to 1,200 tips on these cases. The investigation into what happened to the women on Ida's list has been extensive. Hundreds of people have been interviewed. We have eliminated many suspects. At this time, there are a number of people who are being investigated as persons of interest. If you have any information related to these murdered and missing women, please contact the Albuquerque Police Department. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. After convicting Joseph of the mid-school rapist case, investigators continued searching for more victims and ultimately were able to match his DNA to three more cold case rapes from 1990 to 1993. In 2015, Joseph Blea was convicted for all four rapes and given a 90-year prison sentence. But what about his DNA being linked to Jennifer's case? On one hand, we know that Joseph will almost certainly spend the rest of his life in prison. Still, researching this case really leaves me with this uneasy feeling that there's still potentially a lot of justice that's left undone. How many more mid-school rapes were there that were never officially linked to Joseph? Is it possible that Joseph is connected to these West Mesa murders? Or is he, at the very least, involved in the murder of Jennifer Sherm? Now, we did make an official request to interview Joseph in prison, and we were denied. We were told that we could write a letter instead, and which we've, we've done that, and we didn't get a response. Our hope was that if we could at least ask Joseph a couple questions, we could see if he even remembered Jennifer, and maybe we could get a little bit closer to the truth of what happened on those early morning hours on the night she died. In the end, it was practically a miracle Joseph ever faced any kind of justice at all. And that was largely thanks to Joseph's second wife, Cheryl, 
who reported him for domestic assault and ultimately got his DNA entered into the data system. Then there was the victim, who was an adult, who asked for her rape kit to be tested 20 years after being attacked in 2008. And then there was how Joseph's DNA was linked to Jennifer. Had the cold case unit never re-examined the Crime Stopper tips in Jennifer's investigation, testing the DNA evidence collected intended to convict Alex, it might have never been connected to Joseph. Was it possible these were all just a series of coincidences that all just happened to converge at just the right time? Or was something else at play here? One of the more haunting things that I discovered when looking into Joseph was a comment he made to police that just seems a bit mysterious. He told police during this interview, quote, that I am guilty of many things in my past, but there are even things that you may not be aware of. Now, it could be that, you know, Joseph's DNA being found on Jennifer's body means nothing at all. It is possible that he could very well just have been one of the Johns that she encountered that evening. But if we zoom out, if we look at everything we've learned about Joseph, if we look at it all at once, including his history of being a peeping Tom, stealing women's underwear, being a serial rapist, many instances of domestic violence and decent exposure. He stalked sex workers. They found a rape kit in his car. They know he drove out to the desert to dump debris right out there on the West Mesa. And then finally, finding that tree tag in the burial site, eight feet down, right with the bones at the West Mesa burial site. If you look at these all together, it certainly starts to seem like a whole load of coincidences piling up one on top of the other. Over the years, some people have dismissed Joseph Blea as a viable suspect in the West Mesa murders, claiming his victims were all minors and that it didn't fit the pattern. But that just isn't true, because one of his confirmed rape victims was 29 years old. The death on the Cruz murders from the 80s bore similarities to the West Mesa murders, like the manner of death and how the bodies were dumped in different locations from where they were murdered. Victims who also fit the same basic profile. Vulnerable women. Victims the killer thought wouldn't be missed. Was it possible the same perpetrator was responsible for all of them? Serial killers don't always follow the exact patterns, and it's not unheard of at all for a serial killer to take a break from their killing spree for one reason or another or to evolve to change their M.O. or their patterns. A really good example of this is Joseph D'Angelo. He was also known as the East Area Rapist or the original Night Stalker. Not only did his crimes evolve from peeping to raping to attacking women to murdering them, but he also had three distinct known separate crime sprees, and he took long breaks in between. When it comes to Joseph Blea, we have a long history we're looking at here from the 80s through the 2000s. Police have never disclosed whether or not they've attempted to match Joseph Blaise's DNA to any of the other unsolved homicides from the crews back in the 80s that Jennifer was a part of. It really looks like we'll only ever know more when or if someone eventually gets convicted for those murders. 
But what if these Central Avenue sex workers had been right all along in the 90s? When they told journalist Mike Gallagher, they never believed the murders had actually stopped, but that the killer or killers had started dumping the bodies where no one would find them. As of today, there are still eight missing women from Ida Lopez's list who have never been found. Officially, they're still considered missing persons, but many people like Christine Barber, they just believe that they were buried somewhere else. It's important to find the second potential site, first and foremost, to bring the missing women home to their families. But there's also another reason why Christina Barber thinks is crucial. I guess from a forensic perspective, reason for wanting to find that site is because it might give additional information about the killer. Now, the initial site did give a lot. But the second site, because it's undisturbed, it has not been bulldozed, it might give more clues. But for us at Street Safe, we work with women on the street every single day. And we know how easy it is and how often it is that they get lost and people lose track of them. We want to find the women so that they get justice and that their families know where they are and that they get closure. They have kids, they have children, they have parents, they have sisters and brothers. They all deserve to know what happened to their loved one. And their loved one deserves to be seen and recognized and said, this person is here and we are looking for them. And so that's our goal in wanting to go find the second site. We don't really care about who the killer is. At least I don't personally care who the killer is that much. I care about the killer in so much that they might, whoever they are, might point the direction to the second site. Throughout our investigation into Jennifer Lynn Sherm's case, we discovered a lot of information Andy had never known before. And although we managed to answer a lot of questions surrounding the investigation into Jennifer's case, there's still a lot we still don't know. Like, what investigation was done into finding out who the driver was of the mysterious white Cadillac reported to be seen picking up Jennifer, lurking around East Central Avenue, and other sex workers that were murdered, like Catherine Bindle? Or how about the rest of the forensic evidence that had been retrieved from Jennifer's body and securely stored away? Had any else of it been tested? And what about Joseph Blea? What kind of forensic testing was done in his house or the vehicles he was driving? Andy reflects on how finding out the details of his mother's life and death has affected him, both positively and negatively. It definitely, uh, it opened some wounds. I think about it a lot now. And I think about, there's like a lot of different angles. Part of me feels like I'm going to die. You know, like, it's just weird. Like, I, when I talk about things coming full circle, it's like, it would be uh, fitting for, for my life, you know, for to finally get some justice and then I, then I croak. I feel like I think about my mom a lot now. In all reality, it's like creepy how similar me and my mom are. And so as much as like this can be really painful at times, Sometimes I'm like, man, you should have just left it in that little box in the corner of your mind. But, like, this is the right thing in my heart, in my soul. Like, regardless of how this turns out, I get to get oriented with someone that I never had a chance to. You know, the, the bits and pieces 
that I learned from you guys. And then whenever me and you talk like you, memories come back to me. It's like almost like this regression or something, you know, it's like they're, they're finally popping out. Well, like this can be painful. It's totally worth it. You know, I'm a huge fan of convenience, and that's why I love Factor. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. Wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan plus veggie, and more. And there's even more to enjoy. With over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons that help make your weekly meal planning even more delicious. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. Our friend Jamie is a huge fan of Factor, and here's what she's got to say. I've been a fan of Factor for years now. Their ready-to-eat meal delivery service is the greatest life hack for people who have better things to do than prep and cook meals like binging the latest true crime documentary. Not only is Factor a time and money saver, their jalapeno lime cheddar chicken is to die for. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. No prep, no mess. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. Head to Factormeals.com slash Madness50 and use code Madness50 to get 50% off. That's code Madness50 at Factormeals.com slash Madness50 to get 50% off. While finding out as much as we could about Jennifer was important, we also had another objective, and that was to give Jennifer Lynn Sherm her name back. As we mentioned in episode one, Jennifer's name is scarcely mentioned, and in some cases, not at all. Instead, Jennifer is described in those articles as a prostitute who was beaten, murdered, and dumped under a bush. I think what's so frustrating to me is in one moment in their life, at their lowest point, they resorted to something that society looks upon so poorly and someone made the decision to take their life away in a horrific manner. And suddenly that label of their profession is how we label them, even after their death. So to give someone the name back, that's so important for this case to be able to give Jennifer Lynn Sherm a name. And so people will stop referring to her as just a prostitute or a sex worker. That's so important. Jennifer was much more than that which is evident through her son, who although doesn't have a single memory of her, here he is 39 years later, still trying to get the police, the media, and the world to not only know her name, but to say it and remember it. This month, Andy turned 40, and unfortunately, we weren't able to mark that milestone with news of his mother's case being solved, but we hope we've been able to give Andy another form of closure. I got closure that I never would have had had I not been given those documents, had, had you guys not kind of 
talked me through some of it and pointed out some stuff to me. There's things that I learned about my mom that I would have never known. I would have never known. Everyone's dead. I'm very appreciative of you guys, man. I, I don't know what you know where I'd be in my head right now if, if I hadn't learned so much. So I'm very grateful and, and appreciative and, and humbled by your guys' kindness and the fact that you, you know, you helped me out with all this. Although we had low expectations going into this about what we'd learn, in the end what we found was a treasure trove of information, a rabbit hole with multiple offshoots, leading us on a seemingly endless trail. But that's not all. Surprisingly, almost every call we made to anyone we contacted about this case was returned in record time. People who, when they heard about a son trying to find answers about his mother, wanted to do what they could to help. No one, no one gave a shit about her. No one gave a shit about her family. And so you guys, complete fucking strangers, like reaching out to try and do something something, anything, because no one would do shit. It kind of knocked the wind out of me because I can tell this means something to you. And this obviously means a whole hell of a lot to me. Another important aspect we wanted to highlight in this series is the profound impact these violent crimes have on the loved ones of the victims for the rest of their lives. One of the ways Andy's found to cope with it all was through music, where he found a therapeutic outlet to process his feelings of anger and grief. I've been through psychologists, psychiatrists, school counselors, pastors, name it. I love music. That was the one thing, like, as I got older, that gave me the release that I needed. I started off with metal. All these really extreme, aggressive music that I could just clench my fist and just, yeah, you know. Whenever I was really little, my grandma had this old thing called a fun machine, and it was essentially like a big hunk of wood that was like a keyboard. But I would like just go back into the back room and play it. I was never taught, like I just hit keys and it sounded good to me, it sounded nice. So I had this natural like inclination for music. It was just, it was my best friend. And so time went on, I, uh, I became a part of a, a death metal band, of course. And uh, it, it was awesome. Playing on stage was such an adrenaline rush. At that time I knew music. That's what I'm here for. I did a rap song as a joke, literally. And uh, I, I showed some friends at the time, they're like, dude, you, you're all right, you know? I started doing this rap thing and I wanted to be extreme because that's how I felt inside. You know, I got so much anger and hatred and despised everyone and everything. And for a long time, like my, my beef was with God. You know, I didn't really even believe in God. Like that was the ultimate thing for me. It was just like, well, this massive creator of everything couldn't save this poor young lady. And now here I am and what's he doing for me? So my music initially was geared towards that. And, and I think in the back of my head, like, because the whole boogeyman thing, a lot of my, um, my violent music, whenever I'd ride, I'd think about him. 
And I'm just being honest here. Like, I genuinely believe that if I didn't have that catharsis, if I didn't have that way to release that aggression, I'd probably be on this show on the other side of it. If you saw a photo of Andy, your first impression might be he looks a little intimidating. In fact, if you looked him up on Instagram, you'd be hard-pressed to find a picture of him smiling. But from the first time we spoke to him, Andy proved why you should never judge a book by its cover. Not only is Andy the most gentle-mannered, polite human being we've ever met, after getting to know him over the past three and a half years, we've also learned how introspective he is, how articulate he is, intelligent, appreciative, loyal, and extremely talented. The persona Andy developed as he found healing through music and discovered his voice is the persona he uses as the front for his music, Sick Tanic, a trailblazer in the music industry, introducing the world to occult rap. Known for his dark and controversial lyrics, which are often philosophical and touch upon themes of spirituality, morality, and personal struggles. But for Andy, what started out as a form of therapy grew into something more. I got lucky. I started developing a fan base and here I am like what, 15 years later, man, I've toured the country like five times. I've been in magazines, I've been on TV and my biggest song on Spotify is like 150,000 views and million views on YouTube. And it's like, dude, what a trip. Over the years, Andy acknowledges that his angrier side has softened over time and that his music has given him a sense of purpose, a reason to live. My first five, six albums, something like that, it was all what a lot of people know me for, which is, is what I mentioned, this really angry, blasphemous, aggressive music. This, I don't want to say character because it's me, but it's, it's just a certain side of me the satanic, right? But as I've gotten older and as I lived more, my perspective shifted. Once I saw like, man, you know, like thousands of people listening to your shit, like what are you doing? You could actually have an impact. If I hear a song and I relate to it, it's in my heart forever. Music marks a time and a place, a memory. Just everyone has songs for something and everything. And just one day it kind of clicked like, yo, like, I want to have an impact. My last four albums, I still have some of those more aggressive songs, but it's been more about addiction, struggling, getting more into like more depressed side of things, the more like curious side of things. You can't walk around pissed off all the time. It doesn't change anything. And so as I've gotten older and I've gotten more like, serious too about my music, you know? Like, I have a platform, I can have an impact. Like, I want to help people. I want to let people know they ain't alone. It's unbelievable. It's literally, like, gives me a reason to live. As Andy went over all the documents we sent him, and we kept him briefed on all the various things we were finding over the past two years, you can imagine how emotional it might have been for him at times. At the point we reached the peak of our investigation, Andy shared a personal experience he had, visualizing his mother. 
she had a smile on her face and um, she put her hand on my shoulder and she said some things to me. It was kind of brief, but she basically told me like, hey, you're okay. Everything's okay, I'm okay. The one thing I remember her saying was like, you're doing the right thing, keep going. And then uh, and she said, I love you. And she disappeared. Even talking about now, I'm getting emotional because it's it, that was real. And so that had a huge, huge impact on me. Between that and you guys giving me the opportunity to, to learn so much, I want to feel like I did something and that all of this had some sort of meaning to it. Throughout the past two years of investigating Jennifer Sherm's case and learning about the young woman she was, every person on our team felt a sense of connection to her in her own ways. Detective Ida Lopez referred to the missing women on her list as her girls. Well, you could say Jennifer became her girl. One of the more poignant pieces of information we learned from Jennifer's case file, later confirmed by Andy, was that she had a hummingbird tattoo that she shared with her sister Jessie, a tattoo that she designed. Ironically, if you look up the symbolism of a hummingbird, it seems to represent Jennifer's spirit pretty accurately. Perseverance through adversity, creativity, compassion, a strong independent spirit, and the ability to adapt and overcome challenges. Just like all of us, Jennifer started out in life with dreams and aspirations. And in telling her story, we hope we've not only been able to bring Andy a small amount of peace, but that we've also helped to set Jennifer's spirit free, just as the hummingbird is said, to carry the souls of our loved ones. Currently, a reward up to $100,000 is being offered for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for the West Mesa murders. Anyone with information concerning the victims and or potential suspects is asked to contact the 118th Street Task Force at 1-877-765-8273 or 505-788. 2450. You can also email information to investigator Ida Lopez at ilopez at cabq.gov. Although Jennifer Lynn Sherm's case is still considered open and currently being actively investigated, there are no rewards being offered for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person who murdered her and the other six homicide victims from East Central Avenue back in the 80s. So instead, we're asking anyone who's listening to this series to help us. Please share this series with friends, family, and colleagues to your local news agencies so we can shine a light back on Jennifer's case and ultimately bring justice to Jennifer Lynn Sherm's family. Now I'm going to go off script here. Because I think it's important you hear this before we close out the episode. We've never done an episode before where the family member of a victim 
contributes more than an interview, and for that matter, that's pretty much all we need considering the content we create. But Andy's form of expression is music, so I think it was probably around the second episode that I found out Andy was going to produce a song based on the information we gave him about his mother's murder. And by the end of the third episode we produced, he already had it completed. So if you're listening today, we are proud to present and end this series with the world premiere of Andy's new single. And although it may not be your taste in music, it's his, and it's his mother he's singing about. So to Andy, from everyone here at Team Madness, we want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for letting us showcase your new song, and for trusting us over the past two years to dig into your mother's case and tell her story, your story. And now I'd like to present to you the new single from Sick Tannic, Who Killed Jennifer? Was left to these devices I wonder if she knew That they would leave a 
lifeless Getting down with lots of white In the desert turning tricks On the side from the pimps came the pressure You gotta pay your dues But Jenny was paid to pain and rape And every single kind of abuse Around this time everything goes blurry A bone collected victim of one man That's named WMT It's a spirit I'm preserving Perverted is the name of justice That's always kept me yearning forever I'm hurting Limited man heals The thief and the man steals Tell me is it nature or a monster When man kill Spend my life trying to honor a defender But I'm not any closer Tell me who killed Jennifer The penitent man heals The thief and the man steals Is he just a monster or an evil When man kill Spend my life in a circle with no center All I want is closure So tell me who I'm laying on a ley line The dead have said the peace Now it's time for me to say mine Mom, I'm sorry You never had a fighting chance I heard you had some fury That's where I got my hands My nights are dark and full of terrors A question if you love me or if I was a mistake A remnant of your errors And mom, I'm sorry I ended up a junkie The cycle that repeats It's in the cold Maybe even funny I didn't turn out so well For what it's worth I hope to meet even if it's in the deepest hell But in the meantime I'm trying to give you just a shout out To minds of madness for bringing this to the public I will avenge you one day With the name on the kite And the penitentiary that only ends one way And maybe that's not what you wanted But mom, I need something to help me out Because I'm feeling haunted The penitent man kneels The thief and the man steals Tell me is it nature or a monster would man kill Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also... By checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>